Yes, with the use of pulse oximeters. And they don't work as effectively in different skin tones. And that's really unfortunate and led to worse outcomes. Such a simple device. But the validation for that is typically in healthy humans. And who volunteers for that? It's Caucasian young men. Well, that's not the intended patient population, right? When, when do you go to the hospital to get, and, and the first thing they put on you is a pulse oximeter. So a simple device, but that led to really dire outcomes that could have been prevented had we thought about the unique aspects and considerations of the different patient populations. Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. medical device industry is nothing if not unique. So we built software that works the same way. Greenlight Guru is the only quality management system designed by medical device professionals to meet the unique needs of medical device companies. Our cloud-based platform allows companies to bring safer products to market up to three times faster while reducing risk and lowering cost. Visit www.greenlight.guru today to request your free personalized demo of Greenlight Guru. Hey everyone, welcome back. This episode was recorded live in San Jose, California during our True Quality Roadshow. If you're not familiar with what that is, we still have two stops on our worldwide tour, Amsterdam and Orange County. I'll put links in the show notes so you can find it. This was a fun conversation. This is an interview with Nada Hanafi, the Senior Vice President of Veronix. She is also the mentor and sponsor of MedTech Innovator. <laughs> Maybe not the mentor, but she is a mentor and sponsor of MedTech Innovator, a co-founder and board member of MedTech Color, which is a nonprofit organization that aims to advance the representation of persons of color in the medical device industry. She spent 12 years at the FDA, where she was the CDRH liaison and subject matter expert to FDA's Office of Women's Health and the Office of Minority Health. Nada also holds... An, a Master of Science in Biomaterials, a bas- Bachelor's of Engineering in Biomedical Engineering, uh, Biomedical Ma- Material Sciences and Engineering from Queen Mary College, University of London, and her Master's of Public Health from John Hop- Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She's passionate about the industry and an incredibly well-qualified regulatory strategist, so I hope you enjoyed this wide-ranging conversation with Nada Hanafi. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. My name is Etienne Nichols. I'm the host of today's show. With me today is is Neda Hanafi. I'm excited to speak with you today. Um, I guess before we get into the overall uh, discussion today, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and, and where you come from? Thank you so much for having me. Good afternoon, everyone. So I'm Neda Hanafi, and I am currently a senior vice president for Veronex, and we're a full service uh, provider for the medtech industry. And my focus is really within the regulatory quality clinical. Um, And prior to that, I used to be at FDA, where I say I grew up there. I spent over 12 and a half years at the agency, predominantly CDRH, Center for Devices and Radiological Health. And I started in a traditional route as a lead reviewer and then transitioned to the office of the center director where I led different programs and policies with a unique kind of interest in the health of women, special populations and pediatrics. And 
by training, I'm a biomedical engineer, as many folks probably are here. Um, and I also have a master's in biomaterials and in public health that I got while I was at the agency. That's fantastic. And I, I don't know if you get celebrity status very often when you go to conferences, but we always love to speak with people who are at the FDA because sometimes we look at that as something of a black box. I don't know if that's uh, completely pre predominant throughout the industry, but I know a lot of people see it that way. So I'm curious, during if we could speak a little bit to your time at FDA, you said you grew up there. Um, what are some of your favorite memories? Do you have any things that stick out that you really look at as formative into your career that, that occurred there? Sure. So we're not a black box, or I, I, I still keep saying we, um, but they're not. They're just human beings. They're just like you, but they are tasked with a mission to protect and promote public health. And it's a, it's a pretty serious mission. They are kind of the gatekeepers to ensure that products get to market. When they get to market, they're safe and effective. And then when they're on the market, they remain safe and effective for their intended use. So I, I learned a lot while I was at the FDA. I, I think anyone who works, in federal government, you're you're in a position of service, and and uh, we take that duty seriously. But I also had a lot of fun while at the agency. And you asked me about a happy memory. There's a lot of them. Um, there is one that I'd like to share. While I was there, and when I transitioned to the office of the center director, leading up different strategic priorities. I had the pleasure of working with the DOD, Department of Defense, and they have this group that's called the, I'm probably going to butcher it, but it's the Defense Materials Program Office. And what they do is they collect any kind of failed devices or medical products from the combat field. They're sent back to them to do investigations to see if you know, the reason for their failure or if they caused any kind of adverse events. And I'll, I'll just speak to one specific one. It was about tourniquets. And you imagine it's it's military personnel in combat situations. This is a life-saving device. Um, and they were seeing some major adverse events. So we managed to set up um, a communication with them, share the information that they were seeing, their analysis of the issues, um, as well as connect them with our post-market group um, that looks at MDRs or the more database and, and see if we were seeing similar issues. And then also with our compliance arm. Um, and, and there was like a whole, you know, you think of it TPLC or Total Product Lifecycle Group uh, assessing these issues. And, and we managed to get some resolution and, and uh, move, move the issue forward so that we could ensure that these tourniquets were going to work as intended in a very high risk situation on the combat field. And that was great learnings. And one funny thing that stands out, we, we all had a workshop and we went to um, one of the uh, army base and met with this group that we'd been engaging with for a while. And when I met this senior commander, I, I, you know, major general, really nice uh, staunch man and he's like you're Neda and I said yes and he said I thought Neda was a whole department <laughs> at the agency <laughs> which was which was very interesting and funny but I, I share that because 
there people who work at the agency tend to be really dedicated to what they're doing. It's a couple of people, you know, you, you think there's a lot of resources, but no, it's like one or two person doing the best they can to live into that mission. So that was one memorable experience. I love that. And I love that you zoom in on the human side of things with the FDA. Cause like you said, they're human beings. Every, everybody who works there is a human being. And, and I really appreciate that story. It make, really humanizes it. That, so if we were to zoom out a little bit while you were there, you looked at you, you, I'm sure you understood all of the different regulatory ecosystem that you were living in. I'm curious, um, now having stepped away for a little bit, you still use the word we, but having stepped away for a little bit, do you see any changes in whether it's the relationship or, or how things are approached? Um, curious what your thoughts are as far as, um, how things may have changed or, or for the better, for the worse, whichever you, whichever way you want to go. Yeah, great question. And I say we, I speak to FDA on a regular basis and I have some on speed dial. Unfortunately, they get annoyed with me probably. Um, but there has there has been an evolution. I, I think in the past, most folks were looking to go outside the US and thought there was an easier path to get their product on the market. But I think things have shifted. FDA took a concerted effort to look at our programs, our policies, um, how we conducted um, and, and deliberated and came up with our decisions and tried to bring more transparency and predictability to that. And with that came a lot of more guidance documents um, to explain how we do business, how we come about our decision making both for industry as well as themselves. So to kind of standardize the approach. And you've really seen that shift where now I think industry is coming to the FDA where it's more predictable and they're more consistent in the questions that they're going to ask of you um, to get their product through FDA is probably a lot faster than going into the EU or um, other jurisdictions. So, so that shift, I think, um, has helped with the innovation aspect. You know, they updated their mission statement to say, we want to get products of the public health, most public health importance first in the world in the US. And I think they've really lived into that mission with the changes that they've established. Yeah. That's really interesting. So being regulatory strategist now, you know, having, you, I'm sure your focus, I'm just, you probably had a global focus before, but it was hyper-focused on the U.S. Um, do you do you look at things a little bit more globally now being on the out, outside? I don't really know why to use that word, but um, do you, and, and if so, how do you, how has your perspective changed from a global perspective? So, um it's interesting, maybe some of you are aware that other global regulatory entities are actually now considering accepting FDA approval or granting or clearance as, as the go-to. We've also always considered, you know, I'll be FDA-centric here, as FDA being the gold standard, the requirements, kind of you were held to that high level of, of proving that your product was safe and effective. So there's that shift. But I also see that there's some harmonization across the global regulatory um, groups, uh, especially within the software as a medical device space where they're trying to establish the same similar requirements um, because it's new and fresh. Uh, so I, I think I think you, you, we live in a global and connected universe, and if anything brought that to factor was it the the happenings of 2020 and and the pandemic that it impacted everyone. So I, I think um, you know th there, there's been a shift to try to 
to address issues, public health crises in a faster manner and uh, um, a more effective manner. And, and we realize that you need to be speaking across jurisdictions, across the pond and making sure we're making decisions in a more um, collaborative uh, approach. Yeah. That, so I want to ask just a little bit, one layer deeper, I guess. So challenges and opportunities for med tech from a global standpoint. Um, obviously, we, we typically think EUMDR, you know, we talk about the challenges related to that. I was wondering if there's anything else that kind of stands out to you when you develop a regulatory strategy, or if you'd be interested in even just kind of de- talking through how you develop a re- regulatory strategy and, and what some of the obstacles and challenges people may face. Absolutely. I wish I could ask this group. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I get, get some good insight. So, yeah, regulatory strategies are what we call um, a roadmap to successfully commercialize your product and get it to the market in a least burdensome, so I use FDA terms, but least burdensome manner. What is the minimum amount of data or evidence that you need to generate to ensure that it is going to meet the requirements? Um, so when when we're thinking about regulatory strategy, the, the first things I tell any client um, is, what is your device description? Your product description, understanding how it functions, the specifications, And then tying that back to your intended use and your indications for use. Two words that are sometimes used interchangeably, but they do mean two different things. Intended use is the basic functionality. What does my device do? I'm a scalpel. I cut. Indications for use is everything associated with how that scalpel works. The who, the how, the where, the when, frequency of use, is it Rx prescription or is it OTC, the environment of use, who's using it? Those are all kind of claims that you're going to have to substantiate with that evidence generation. I know I use a simple example of scalpel. That's a class one exempt device. It's class one exempt when it's in the hands of a physician, right? So that's that's the cri- critical piece. So it really stems from there, understanding what your product is and how it works and what disease state, what patient population, who's using it, i.e. that intended use indications for use. And then you can develop what's my pathway to market, what's the evidence generation plan and so forth. So those two are really critical. If you don't have those, <laughs> then you start to go in this cycle of never ending, not knowing, you know, or pre-sub cycles with FDA and, and kind of it's a downward spiral. And so I guess once you start developing that regulatory strategy, you know what your device is, you know how it's intended to be used, who it's going to be used on. At some point, it becomes something of an economic uh, question. And and do you get into the economical side as far as determining how are we going to return a profit, you know, and where will we go to do that? Is that part of your... So that's part of Veronex. So, um, and it's a fantastic question. So yes, there's the regulatory strategy, but in parallel, you should be thinking about your commercialization strategy, right? Your market access strategy, your reimbursement strategy. That's kind of, you could get it cleared or approved or granted, but is anyone going to pay for it? Right. So that needs to be done in parallel. And the requirements from a reimbursement perspective are going to slightly differ to what FDA's requirements are. They're going to be looking at really more outcomes related um, aspects. So if you're definitely if you're thinking of uh, if it's a device that's going to require some kind of clinical data, it makes 100 percent sense to be thinking of what's the study for FDA to get you to market, but then what are the requirements from a reimbursement 
perspective, what's the the speciality of that industry going to want to see? You know, I'll say urologists, they love to look at literature. Did you publish on this? Did you study it before they'll start to use the products? So you got to understand which market you're going into, the speciality and what. how, how are you going to be able to convince them to actually, um, you know, use your device and an uptake and left. So they go parallel in parallel, but then I also jump back because I'm FDA or regulatory centric. If you don't get through FDA, you're not going to get paid. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but they go hand in hand for sure. Absolutely. There's a certain baseline you have to meet. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Okay. So that's what you do at Verinex. I know you also have something else that you co-founded, MedTech Color, and it may seem like a non sequitur that I would bring this up, but I am curious. Uh, well, first of all, I want to hear a little bit about that, but I also want to hear how it ties into regulatory strategy as well, because I know there's a, a tie there. But can you tell us a little bit about MedTech Color and, and the, the mission and, and what motivated you to co-found this? Yes, absolutely. And thank you for the question. This is a initiative that's very near and dear to my heart. So MedTech Color is a nonprofit and we were founded in 2018. And it was a group of executives and senior leadership um, folks in the industry of color, black and brown specifically. I had moved over from um, DC or the DMV area that's a lot more diverse in my mind um, to come to the Bay Area here. And we all shared the same experience that there was a lack of diversity, especially when it came to black and brown people at the table. And, and, And it just kind of was um, you know, quite shocking. Others who had been in industry always saw uh, different racial and ethnic groups, but on the shop floor, not in the leadership and key decision-making roles. And that was a missed opportunity. So MedTech Color was founded 2018 and um, it, our mission is to diversify MedTech. And we believe that if you have diverse perspectives, and it's not just us believing it, but the data's out there, that if you have diverse perspectives, diverse leadership, you develop better products that are actually going to meet the unique needs of the end user. You look at, you know, we live in a global environment. You look at the patients we're trying to develop these products for. They're all very diverse different racial, ethnic minority groups. So um, we need to have that at all levels within MedTech. So our our goal is to have people enter MedTech that look differently, have different perspectives, different backgrounds. You don't have to be a biomedical engineer or an engineer or a scientist. You can be a communicator. You can be a public health expert. uh, You can be a lawyer. There's just I think the medtech world offers so many opportunities to bring different expertise in, and we just want to make sure that that's representative of the patients that we're developing these technologies for. So from a regulatory strategy perspective, what would be the advantage of uh, trying to make sure that that you are inclusive of, of all these different um, possibilities? What, what, what is the regulatory strategy advantage? So I'm, I'm going to take it, many people might jump to, oh, clinical trials. I'm sure you've heard about the lack of diversity in clinical trials. And there's a lot of emphasis on that from regulatory agencies, from funding agencies, um, from the big industry players. Um, but uh, we like to think of it upstream. Down, you know, clinical trials are downstream and it's too late. You've missed your opportunity. So upstream when you're designing your products, right, in that ideation phase, uh, when you're thinking about 
again, what's the device? What's the patient population? Is it just, uh, does it disproportionately impact a specific group? Um, does it disproportionately impact women? Um, and, and kind of se- segregating or, or determining your, your, your true patient population. You've got to think of their unique needs there, right? Um, and, and thinking of it at the design phase will definitely lead to downstream benefits because then if you do need to do a clinical study, you know who you're actually targeting and intending to use this product in. Um, and, and it's too late at that point. And how does that impact reg strategy? Well, FDA now has a strategic priority that's related to health equity, um, there it's, it's going to become law. It's, it's become, going to become in a statute where you have to explain to FDA, what's your plan to include different racial and ethnic groups in your clinical studies. So this is a requirement. Finally, it's taken us this long, right? Um, but products need to work in the population they're intended to be used in. And one key example that unfortunately um, the pandemic highlighted where we saw disproportionate deaths and mortality morbidity in the black community was with the use of, um, thank you so much, yes, yes, with the use of pulse oximeters and they don't work as effectively in different skin tones. And that's really unfortunate and led to worse outcomes. Such a simple device. But the validation for that is typically in healthy humans. And who volunteers for that? It's Caucasian young men. Well, that's not the intended patient population, right? When when do you go to the hospital to get... And and the first thing they put on you is a pulse oximeter. So a simple device, but that led to really dire outcomes that could have been prevented had we thought about the unique aspects and considerations of the different patient populations. So you already mentioned doing it early with design. And my my mind is kind of going back to what you said earlier about intended use and indications for use and how this could be potentially a subset of your indication for use, I assume. What would... And like what is the actual practical or what is the way this, what does this look like in reality? Like when you actually go through, sit down, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to cover all the bases here. What does it look like in the design and development process? Can you, can you give us a little nitty gritty in the weeds? What a great question. I think it's going to depend, right? It depends again on what the product is and how it's intended to be used. And is it an implant or is it a wearable? Is it permanent or is it a, a, a temporary device? And I think it's all these considerations. And I'm sure a lot of quality folks in here, there's checklists. But, you know, the basis or the core of it is really your risk assessment, right? When you're looking at your user needs and how, what risks might be associated, what's the likelihood of those risks, and then how are you going to mitigate for those risks, right? So I, I think it starts there. And hence, if you embed the thinking of are there different considerations based on the patient population, I mean, sex being an, an immediate one, right? Women are not little men. Let's get over that. And women are also not just their breasts and their uterus and vagina. It's not bikini medicine. Women will be exposed to devices such as hip implants and knee implants and any other cardiovascular devices. So you've got to 
consider their unique needs. And a lot of times I think design groups might think of anatomy as the first differentiator, but we want you to go deeper because there are racial and genetic differentiators that you need to take into account. So I, I think it's it's groups coming together and challenging the mindset, right? Um, even if you look at in the ophthalmic space, uh, you know, a female uh, eyelid is very different. Really? Yes. And I'm not I'm an ophthalmologist, oh. but I've I've, you know, when you speak to different people, they're, they're very unique considerations. And then if you layer on by race or by ethnicity, um, there's even more differences, right? And then add another layer of the social determinants of health, right? And the environmental aspects. So there's a lot of considerations. And I think um, companies and innovators miss on opportunities and will fail in the long term, if they don't consider these items up front. And of course, then you might say this is just overwhelming. But that's why I said it really starts with what disease state or what problem, what pain point are you trying to address and, and defining that problem. So I'll just add one little thing. I think a very well-defined problem is a half-solved problem. And, and that's where the effort and focus should start. I love that because early in my career, I had a mentor who told me the heart of the problem is the seed of the solution. And so really focus on the the problem and forget, forget the solution, just focus on the problem. So I, I love that. So I'm curious. So if we zoom out a little bit, thinking in regulatory strategy, I mean, obviously we can go deeper with this, but again, I, I'm curious as a regulatory strategist, whether it's in um, this area or other areas, what are common problems or obstacles you see companies getting into um, that you just say, you know, I, I saw this at the FDA. I see it now. I, I know this is a problem people are, people are facing and getting into. So one thing I, I see is people trying to move fast, you know, speed matters. Um, time is money, especially when you're a small company, say, and, and we want to get to market now, now, now. And maybe they haven't really defined a problem. So uh, a lot of what I tend to do right now, which is unfortunate, actually, is what we've termed regulatory rescue. They've had several interactions with the agency and they haven't moved them forward. They haven't moved the needle. And when we dissect it, they couldn't explain their product, how it works, what it's intended to do. And they couldn't bring FDA along with them because they probably didn't even know what their product was or it's intended to do. And they're like flip-flopping around. And, and it's like, take the time up front, go slow to be able to go fast. And I think I, I, I will sound like a broken record. Many who know me will say this. It's always that product description, intended use indications for use. Knowing that your intended use or your indications may evolve especially if you have to conduct a clinical study, because it depends on the outcome of that clinical study. It's like the last item that you're negotiating with FDA, if you're just about to get clearance, you know, they might say, oh, we've changed this word, or, you know, we need you to remove this sentence, but it's all about the evidence generation. So it's the last thing. So it's always your proposed indications, intended use, and it evolves based on the evidence that you have to support it. Um, but but that, that's where I think you haven't, fully decided what you as a company are tackling, what pain point, and then you can't fully explain that to FDA and you get into this unfortunate cycle and it's frustrating on both sides, um, but it could be prevented if you take the thought up front to, to kind of really define your lane and, and stick to it. Do, do you have any specific examples that you've seen where people do this incorrectly? Uh. 
<laughs> and if not, it's okay. You can <laughs> just, I mean, this is a simple example. So you think of class one exempt devices, your class one exempt, that means you don't have to submit a pre-market notification or 510k unless you exceed the exemptions, right? Um, and, and you have to figure out how you exceed those exemptions. This is a tricky one because if you're class one exempt, you're likely there's no predicate out there, right? Because the majority are class one exempt. You might find an odd one where you were exceeding or you were going for a claim that really did require substantiating and that FDA would need to review. And I think it's in those tricky spaces where I've seen some clients submit a misthought out 510k. Go ahead. Well, just curious. So exceeding meaning I, I actually plan to do more with this device than and maybe what, I'm saying. Exactly. Yeah. Then what the CFR Code of Federal Regulations identification of that product. And, and, and you have to do that assessment. And again, it goes back to benefit risk profile and your risk assessments um, to determine if you're exceeding it. And then you have to submit a 510K. And those can be very tricky. Um, I think FDA is less familiar with them. And then I, I see in industry, a lot of times they're less familiar with what the approach is. Um, so in terms of that, I'd say, think about what is the ROI? What is the return on investment if you really want to pursue these claims? Is it giving you some market advantage, right? That's worth it because it's, it's not cheap. <laughs> if you're working with a consultant or for the time spent, if you're doing it on your own, and then just even in interacting and paying for a 510k and the whole process. So th thinking about that word strategy, does it make sense then to narrow your scope to get through and then potentially widen it later on with a, an, an updated... You do strategy? Uh, I just <laughs> talk to people. <laughs> no, absolutely. So I think what you're, what you're speaking to is kind of a stepwise approach. So even if you're, if you're wanting the world and all the claims that you could get, Yet. One other thing we advise clients is let, let's do a aspirational claims matrix. Let's let's put down all the claims that if you could have and get um, what they would be. And then you kind of have to tie that back to what's the evidence required to get those claims. And then you might be like really whittling those claims down when you see the amount of work that's going to take. So doing kind of a stepwise approach, what's a minimal viable product? that you want to get to market that can get through the process in the least burdensome manner with the least amount of information and data. And then you kind of expand on your claims once you get your first clearance granting or, or your approval as a PMA. I don't know if you guys heard that phrase, aspirational claims matrix, but uh, that's what you got to write down. I like that. That's really cool. Um, I'm curious, what, so what are the consequences of getting this wrong? I, you, you said it's expensive, some of this additional claims. Like, can, you, can you give us an example of all the different expenses that, you know, whether maybe direct or indirect, do you have any um, examples there? So, I mean, it's time, right? So if we just run through a case example, you've submitted a, even if it's in the pre-sub world, you get stuck in pre-sub land, back and forth, back and forth. Yes, you don't have to pay a fee to FDA to submit a pre-sub, but you've had to either pay a consultant or work with someone or or use misuse your employees' times to be developing these pre-subs, right? So time is money, as we said. So there's all of that. And, and a pre-sub, typically it's a 75-day process before you might get a meeting with the agency. Sometimes it's sooner, but then there's the upfront time that you created. So imagine that could be, you know, a 
four months process, right? That you've just killed. And in a year, we only have 12 months. So you only got eight months left to execute on what you have to execute. So, so I, I think it's, it's that aspect of, of not having a strategy, like a, you know, like I said, that roadmap to see where you want to go and understanding what's the evidence requirements to get you there. That makes sense. So I have a two-sided question then. I want to kind of pull both your regulatory strategy, but also what you're doing with MedTech Color. I'm curious, how do the best in class companies paint a, whether it's um, a demographic or a psychographic picture to, to really make this claim or um, just really from the design and development all the way through the life cycle? How do the best in class companies incorporate that thinking? I think it's intentionality. Um, it's It starts with having the open mind and having a talent pool that is diverse, right? Um, I think a lot of them also do a lot of needs assessment and community-based outreach to understand, hey, if I'm going to innovate in this space, you know, what's the biggest need, right? I'm sure there's all about the ROI aspect, but then what is the biggest need and, and what does this... Um, patient group look like. I think a lot of times they'll also, I know in the pharma space specifically, they do use um, personas to kind of understand the different patient groups that they're going into. Um, and I'm hoping more of the device world will start to do that. But I think it's also engaging with KOLs and going into the community and understanding how to engage with them, especially if you're going to be studying, need to study, to conduct clinical studies, right? Um, because you need that, that those patients in your trials. Um, you know, it's building a trust aspect, the, the lack of trust in the clinical clinical research enterprise, especially in certain racial groups, um, stems, you know, years and years, it's historical. So you have to overcome that and you have to step into it to, to really show that you're reputable. You're not just there to take this, these people's data and information and then get lost, but that you're going to come back and you're giving back to the community. So it's engagement in all aspects. Um, and, and, um, wanting to do the right thing. But I, I think it's intentionality. The good leaders, the, the the leading companies out there, they're intentional. They're saying we're, we're committed to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging in all aspects. And our products are really going to serve those most at need. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. So our goal at Greenlight Guru is to improve the quality of life. So just that that changes the way you look at things when you really think about your mission. So it makes sense. And also, you mentioned something about the the persona, and I had forgotten about this. But when I worked in drug delivery, I remember this. We had we had our PowerPoint with the person, their name, their the, what they the way they look like, and so forth. And uh, I remember those human factors tables from HE75, if I remember that right, where you, you know, the hand strength, I, we did a test once where um, they had me do the test strength as well. And I said, well, how'd I do? I was pretty pumped. They said, well, it's, it's, it's not uncommon for, you know, your hand strength to decline as you get into your thirties. And that was, that was a <laughs> terrible moment for me, but, um, but that, that's a, I, I love that you bring those things up. So the flip side of that, though, so the, those that's how some of the best in class companies, but you mentioned that this is going to become a requirement if it's not already what are some of the common problems or, or the common mistakes? You, you also mentioned a specific example, the pulse oximeters. What, what are the common problems that a lot of companies you foresee probably continuing to do or, uh, or so forth? I'm going to be hopeful and say that we're going to learn from our mistakes. So we're not going to be repeating the same mistakes. Um, I, I think they'll learn the hard way if they don't 
follow the requirements. So for pulse oximeters now, there's active discussion on updating the standards, the requirements, how are we actually going to verify and validate these products work um, and the type of testing that's needed. And FDA is moving to, you know, if it's a pulse oximeter used in a pediatric patient population, they want data from that patient population. In the past, we didn't want that. Well, we were missing out, right? So I think you're going to have to, if you're, if you're not, you're, if you're not, Ahead of the curb, you need to get ahead of the curb or just get get on the train and move along with it. Otherwise, it's going to pass you and you're not going to be getting your products to market. So I'm hopeful that there is like a commitment, especially in med tech. I think we're flexible. We're agile. Um, we develop products at a lot faster rate than the pharma or biologics world. And we can reiterate and, 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 and you know, have device changes and technologies evolve um, to really meet these these new unique issues um, and improve health outcomes, so I'm hopeful, and I, I think people aren't going to do it wrong. That's that's my wish for this world. You know, just do it right at the beginning. But if you don't do it right, you'll learn, right? I, I think the most successful people are also those who've had failures, but they've learned from them, and they're not doing the same mistake over and over again. Yeah. If you were listening to our previous panel, we talked about our favorite failures and um, they're definitely some smart people. They've learned from that. That's really cool. That's a good point. I'd like to ask the audience for questions, but I'll give them a second to think about it because they've probably been hanging on your every word. So before we get to their questions, I'm curious, do you have any last pieces of advice for those out there who are facing reg regulatory strategy, facing their design and development challenges that you mentioned? Um, any pieces of advice that you give these companies? Yes, actually, I, I think, you know, you mentioned trying the strength test. So I'm also a big believer in, in the lived experience um, and that patient perspective. So if you are designing something novel, consider having a patient join you in, in your design and engineering journey and, and being a part of it. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll be a little bit women-centric here. I think when you're designing for women's health or the health of women, you need to design with empathy in mind. You can say that's true for pediatric patient populations, for special populations, for the geriatrics, um, any population. I'm not missing you out, gentlemen. Um, but kind of designing with empathy in mind. And how are you going to get that, that real lived experience, having a patient join you on that journey? And there are going to be different needs at different stages in their disease journey, right? But I think incorporating that patient perspective and voice early on will also lead to a better device and product at the end. Fantastic. Really appreciate that. We'll give the audience an opportunity to ask any questions. Do you have any questions? Yes. I, I think that the FDA has done such a good job of um, being more approachable and uh, approving product quicker so that a lot, of, a lot of medical devices are starting to get approval in the U.S., where 10 years ago they would have always gone overseas, maybe to the EU or perhaps Japan first. I was wondering, a lot of my customers have a, a really hard time when they have a device and they, they've, they've shown efficacy in, in, in animal studies, now they're ready to, to do uh, clinical trials in humans. They all have to go overseas because it's really hard to get into human clinical trials here. Do you think the FDA will uh, figure out a way to make it easier to start human clinical trials here in the United States? 
That's a great question. And I think FDA has has been thinking a, a lot about this and they have established programs to allow that. So you all may have heard of the early feasibility IDE program. So if, if you have to study, if you have to conduct a clinical study and it's a, considered a significant risk study, you have to submit an IDE to FDA. And so they created this early feasibility program where if you're still in the early stages of developing your product, it's not, not fully fleshed out, you can come in, submit this IDE. It's very limited, you know, maybe you're first in man um, where it's only 10 or 15 patients. You show them some semblance of safety data in preclinical animal, and then you um, can study it in humans. And if you want to tweak the clinical study design or your device, you have to submit these changes to FDA to approve. But they turn around that approval in a lot faster timeline, right? And, and that was an effort, a big policy push effort to try and encourage folks to actually do clinical studies here. I found that some People choose to go out of U.S. I have uh, many clients who are in Australia. The government there incentivizes them and gives them tax breaks if they're conducting their clinical studies in their hometown. But, you know, I I think I I definitely and many of my fellow regulators like to encourage folks to think of, you know, conducting the studies here. I think the IDE review timeline is only 30 days. Um, so if it's a big comprehensive package, but FDA will either approve it or conditionally approve it or deny it, but you will get their feedback. They'll give you a list of questions and that's their thinking of what they want to see. So it's it's only helping you move your product design and development for, forward in a more expeditious manner. So I think early feasibility is one great program that does encourage this first in man studies or first in human studies to be conducted here in the US. I hope that answers the question. Thank you. Uh, Nada, you talked about empathy. Um, FDA has been issuing guidance for human factor and usability engineering, but they haven't really gotten into regulating that. Do you think they have a thought process where as they learn more, they might be regulating this field as well? Regulating the field of human factors testing and usability. And usability engineering. Yeah, I mean, and that's heavy. That's really interesting because right now the joke is that any device needs human factors (laughs) testing or usability testing. Uh, And I see many, you know, of you quality engineers nodding your head. Um, But even that would be a, 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 a good test to have in product development, even if you don't need it for your regulatory submission. So no, FDA is very much... Um, regulating that space and looking for human factors studies to substantiate that the products are safe and effective. And it's funny, I was actually looking at a de novo that was granted last year um, and it didn't have any clinical testing requirements, which is strange for a de novo, like in the, in the special controls, but it had usability for everything. Nearly. So I think the the need for, you know, valid data as relates to can a product be used safely by that intended patient population or that group, the intended user is is critical and very much on FDA's like top list of requirements. What's the best practice for a letter to file? So after you have your uh, MVP submitted and got clear, 
and you determine that all the changes of subsequences doesn't impact the performance of the product, but you and then you decided not going to submit that as a letter of the file. Instead, you keep track of it. Is that really best practice, or is there any other way that you can do the best practice before you submit a letter to file after you have your 510k? So, so a letter to file is an internal document, right? So you've you've hopefully done your risk assessment and gone through the 510k flowchart to determine that the changes you're making don't require the submission of a new 510k, and you document that. Um, I, I I know a lot of companies do a lot of letters to file appropriately. But good documentation, good you know, document practice is, is critical because you can be audited at any time. And and we've also seen where sponsors um, fail in that sense and FDA thinks, oh, well, that should have really been a 510K. But uh, where we hear a lot of letters to file if, if the true risk assessment is conducted appropriately, um, I, I think there reaches a point where you don't want too many letters to file. And then people like to say we do this 510k catch up right and and those are not fun um, they're not fun for FDA and they probably won't be fun for you so considering that balance of when have you made too many changes that now it's really not the same device that you got clearance for and and catching it before you get to that stage and, and submitting the appropriate um, 510k be it a special or traditional Thanks for the great comments and advice. Um, my question is about um, the FDA's regulation um, for s uh, more software-based um, mobile um, like software as uh, medical devices or even AI-based solutions um, when there is need to train the model and the data could be different and uh, what if the uh, data changes or the model variations, how is that being um, regulated into the future or or now and into the future? Or what do you think is needed? Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the question. So um, the, the software as a medical device space or the digital health space is very fast and evolving. And I think everyone and their mother wants to be a software as a medical device <laughs> based on our clientele. Um, I think, yes, the, the training model is very important to our earlier conversation about representation, right? Making sure your model isn't biased or skewed to one perspective and is, you know, whatever you're, you're, you're studying isn't going to work in a specific demographic. Um, so, you know, uh, how, how you train it. Uh, first of all, you have to have separation on your, your training data and then on your validation data. They have to be two separate arms, um, and you clearly need to delineate that for FDA. But then also in terms of if you're making changes and involving that algorithm, do I need to keep submitting a 510K? It's a great question. I think it's the same assessment and thinking there. FDA has, what's really nice is, like you're saying, they're more predictable and more transparent. So they have issued a lot of guidances in this space um, and final guidances, which is nice because, you know, if, if you're a draft guidance, you're really not in effect. Um, and even FDA can't issue a deficiency or an additional information request based on a draft guidance. They should not do that. Um, it has to be a final guidance. 
So they've, they've made a big effort to put final guidance out, especially when it comes to the software space, to kind of explain what changes may trigger a 510K or what is appropriate to be changing in your software, in your algorithms, without the need to go back to FDA. And it always ties back to that intended use, right? Is the change impacting the safety and effectiveness of that intended use? I kind of have a follow-up question. Um, You kind of got me thinking a little bit here. So when you're training that model, you don't want it to be biased. But we also mentioned something earlier about being very more specific to something, uh, to to your user population. So I'm curious about how you walk the line between specific to this user population, but also not being biased so that you won't, and maybe it ties back to your indications for use. And I don't want to pile too many questions on here, but I want to add another detail. And that is... um, with AI, it becomes, it feels like it becomes necessary that we start differentiating what is this versus that in that, like you mentioned, I, I love how you, I love your commentary about what is a woman, you know, like it's more than, you know, these, these body parts and, and then differentiating different ethnicities. How are we going to do that with, uh, with AI and training these models? Or do you have any thoughts around that? becoming? Well, well they're going to have to do it. I mean, a lot of AI is now used in the imaging space, right? Um, you're looking at an MRI on x-ray and you're trying to feed up information or, or recognize an area that's high risk that a physician should focus on like triaging um, software. Those, you know, if it's looking at any imaging, you need to make sure it's the representative images, right? I mean, if it's in prostate cancer, yeah, you want to make sure it's men, but you want to make sure it's men of different racial and ethnic groups. So so that's the training aspect. You yeah. need to make sure if there's a differentiation of how prostate cancer presents based on race and ethnicity, and it's, it's something that impacts uh, African-American men at a much higher rate as well. So it goes back, like you said, into your intended use or indications for use and tying it there. But in, in, in modeling and in the AI space, I mean, FDA is very much on what was your data trained on and then what was it validated on and is it representative? Um, and maybe they're in the imaging space because a lot of it is, um, you know, on retrospective images, it, it's a little bit easier. Maybe they're ahead of the curve in being more representative in, in that modeling space. Yeah, the, it, one of the, just one of the interesting things to me about how to, how to quantify certain differences is going to be interesting uh, in the future. Um, you know, rather than being subjective. I, I don't know. I'm just curious about that. My brain's kind of thinking about it, but anyway. Yeah, I know that 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 machine learning's way ahead of my thinking for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions from the audience? Okay. This has been really good. I really appreciate you coming on the show today and I'm excited to... Uh, Excited to continue the conversation in the future. Um, thank you. You've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast and uh, we will see you all next time. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, reach out and let us know either on LinkedIn or I'd personally love to hear from you via email. Uh, Check us out. If you're interested in learning about our software built for MedTech, whether it's our document management system, our CAPA management system, the design controls risk management system, or our electronic data capture for clinical investigations, this is software built by MedTech professionals for MedTech professionals. You can check it out at www.greenlight.guru or check the show notes for a link. Thanks so much for stopping in. Lastly, 
please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It helps others find us. It lets us know how we're doing. We appreciate any comments that you may have. Thank you so much. Take care.